Okay, so we're reading from Judges 14 and then Judges 15, and I'm doing the first part. So, Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is not there a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down to his father and mother at Timnah, And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion to pieces, as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your wife to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard, and she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In the hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. And uh, just continuing from chapter 15, Samson defeats the Philistines. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, as you do. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, 
but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of a rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not surely kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place there at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of, the, the name of it is called Enhankari. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. I think we should give a round of applause to those guys for taking so long. And they did a wonderful job in reading it. Uh, if you are um, visiting, welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. And if you're someone who calls Canterbury home, it's a great joy to have you here, obviously, with us. If you're wondering why do we uh, take time to pause and read big chunks of uh, of the Bible, a couple of reasons. Uh, it's a deliberate uh, decision. Uh, for that, it's because if you're like me, you might have really busy weeks. Uh, how often do you stop and just sit and read or listen to God's Word? You might do that regularly. This is an opportunity for us to stop and let God, because we trust when we hear and read His Word, it's as though He's speaking audibly to us. Maybe He's already stirring something in you as those passages were read. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we come to you this morning, uh, wherever we are in our faith journey, whether we are followers of yours, whether we are skeptical or exploring, would you reveal more of your son to us? Lord, I pray that through your word you will change lives today for your glory. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Uh, Once again, a very special welcome to you if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens. We've been journeying through the book of Judges, and we're continuing our sort of journey in Samson and part two of Samson. Uh, Last week, we explored this big idea of God being the God who still does wonders. Uh, the God who does wonders, both in the time of Samson and even in our day and age today. And that was beautifully and gloriously displayed through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to die for our sins, even though we might not be asking or not necessarily asking to be rescued. Uh, this morning, I want us to consider two things. Uh, firstly, the downward spiral of sin. Uh, and secondly, if you haven't picked it up yet, one of the big themes of Judges is God's grace. The downward spiral of sin, what do I mean? So Samson, we got introduced to him last week, uh, and we were told that he was born and, and he was committed from a very young age from the womb for God's purposes. Now, I don't know if you remember last week, there was a particular vow that his parents were told that you should um, apply this to your son. It was called the Nazarite vow. Uh, now, I'm going to mention a couple of things. The reason for that is when the Bible deliberately puts in like certain facts there's a, there's a reason for it. And as you think about the Nazarite vow, you need to think, okay, that's the Nazarite vow. What is the Nazarite vow? And then how is Samson living out his life based on that vow? So last week we talked about the Nazarite vow. There are basically three key things. One, and if you want to read it in detail, you can go to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. They have to abstain from wine and strong drink or anything associated with the vine. That means not even going close to it, not even near it in the order that they don't become unclean if they touch it by mistake. They can't cut their hair. Obviously, I don't have the Nazarite vow. Uh, They are not able to come in contact with anyone that's dead or anything that's dead, any kind of corpse. And if you did break this, you had a kind of a get out of um, jail card, which was you had to go through the ceremonial cleansing and to retake the vow. Now, keep that in the back of the mind as you have just heard Samson's story as we explore that this morning. So Samson is born. We know that in the previous chapter, the Spirit of the Lord is very strong on him. Uh, It's very clear that this man has a particular purpose. God has been stirring him. And we read these verses in the first three verses. Samson went down to Timnah. At Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all other people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. Uh, You probably have heard this kind of proverb or you probably have heard this saying. The saying is, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, It's an ancient proverb, but it's a cute way of saying, What I find beautiful might not be necessarily what you find beautiful. Uh, the world that we live in are constantly in, um, communicating to us about things that are aesthetically beautiful. What is really pleasing in your eyes, in my eyes. 
using the biblical terms. It evokes something in us when we look at things that are meant to look really attractive to us. Did you know that your smartphone that's in front of you, you might be looking at it right now on your screen, has been specifically designed to look aesthetically pleasing to you? Even the app designers, when they design apps, they don't want to make it look clunky. It needs to look nice, aesthetically pleasing to the eyes. I mean, even the very reason why you take photos, there's a thing called filters. So that you can make your photo look really, really nice, aesthetically pleasing. I do that every time when I take a photo of a coffee cup. The idea is to kind of be stirring to, to whatever looks pleasing to you. It's a strong pull. But see, in the story of Judges, in the story of the Bible, this is nothing new. Even for Samson himself, that statement that he makes. Because at the heart of Judges, that's the statement. They do whatever is pleasing in their own eyes. And when we look at Samson's life, it's like we're looking at two parallel lives. There's the life of Samson and Israel as a nation. So in many ways, what we're seeing is this life played out of Israel in the life of Samson. That's exactly what's going on. And what we're seeing is the downward spiral of sin. Downward spiral of sin, in summary, is to say, hey, I'm going to reject anything that God says. I'm going to reject my vows. I'm going to reject everything that stands for God. I'm going to live under his loving authority. So what we see in this chapter is what's going on in Samson's life. One thing is very clear. This man, from a young age most probably told, and he's got a vow that he's been imposed on him, it's very clear he's not wanting to necessarily live it out. He might have the hair. Uh, he might have certain uh, aspects of the vow that says he's a Nazarite. But it's very clear he doesn't take that vow very seriously. His lifestyle doesn't connect with his vow or what he's committed to. It shows otherwise. I mean, he's very clear that he has a couple of desires. The very big desire that keeps pushing him, and you see that in the whole story of Samson, is women. He loves women. And particularly, Philistine girl to start off with. So Samson goes out to Timnah. Timnah is part of the northern boundary of Judah. By this time, the Philistines have come in. It was assigned to a tribe called Dan, and this is in the hill country. So Samson's going down. Now, when the Bible makes statements like going down, going down, and repeats itself... It's trying to make you pay attention. It's in other words of saying, what's Samson doing? Why is he going there? Why is he leaving his home and going down to the Philistine area? He shouldn't be there. He is a Nazarite. Everything in that area will be unclean. What's he doing? You know, and in some sense, if you were listening to the story, if you can just imagine, you know, a little uh, um, Jewish parents reading the story of Samson, and they've just finished in the previous chapter that we had, Oh man, Samson, who's got the vow, the Spirit of the Lord is on him. <gasps> he's going to Timnah. Hey, that's where the Philistines are. This is where the battle starts. This is where he's going to pick a fight, right? No. He goes down and he sees a girl. And he's so captured by her. What does he do? He goes back to mum and dad. Uh, to get their blessing? No. I want her. I want you to get her for me. She's caught my attention. In this moment, the mum and dad speak up. They say, son, what are you doing? You, this is not for you. I mean, son, don't you realize, why, why don't you pick someone from our own relatives? That was going on in that time and age. But not only that, if you're not happy with anyone in our relatives, why don't you head out to the, the, the daughters of Israel? Why would you want to go down to the Philistines, particularly those uncircumcised 
Philistines, the daughters of the uncircumcised. What are you doing? Now, if you are new to the faith or exploring, it sounds very judgmental of Samson's parents. Uh, are they a bit racist? You know, kind of like someone from another kind of tribe. What's the big deal? Look, why don't you just let him follow his own heart? He likes the girl. What's the big deal? See, um, what the parents are doing are trying to display something. The people of Israel and Samson and his parents have been called to a particular relationship. That is a relationship with the Lord God, Lord Yahweh, of which the Bible language is to say they have a covenant with relationship with God. And in other words, if, they, if Samson does this, he's breaking that. He's saying, hey, Samson, if you do this, you do realize what's going to happen. You will end up adopting their gods. And not only that, you're disobeying, which is significant, but not only that, your worship now is going to be definitely skewed away from the God of the universe. You are breaking your covenant. This is Old Testament language. In other words, it's saying, hey, Samson, you're breaking your vows in a lot of ways. And the language that the parents use are so strong about uh, circumcision, uncircumcision, is to say, hey, Samson, we as a family are committed to the God of the Bible. We have a covenant with him. We are his people. And if you're going to do this, if you marry someone outside this covenant, what you're really doing is not, nothing to do with interracial marriage or anything like that. It's about an interfaith marriage. What you're doing in that moment is saying, hey, we're going to carry that relationship towards you. We're going to have an interfaith marriage. And that's the reality of the book of Judges. It's exactly what's going on. In a big level. They're having interfaith relationship with the gods of the nations around them. And to marry someone in another faith is ultimately saying they're regarding their covenant faith with God. And the fruit is terrible. And it actually will not go good for them. It will not go well for them. Now, obviously, Samson, being a good lad, says to his mum and dad, Oh, mum and dad, you got it right. No. He's consumed by her. Go get her for me. Another modern day version might be based on a song, Mum and Dad, I'm free to do whatever I want any old time. That's the downward spiral of sin. It lies to you, it lies to me. It's ultimately saying, hey, what's the big deal? Just follow your heart. She's right in your eyes, Samson. That's all that matters. And what we're seeing is the downward spiral of a judge in many ways is really shadowing the downward spiral of a whole nation. The great philosopher and one of the greatest Jedis that ever existed, Obi-Wan Kenobi once said, your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. Friends, I want to pause in this moment to say to you, there are many of us who proclaim that we are followers of Jesus. And in many ways, there are even some of us today are doing what is right in our own eyes. And what it's doing is actually compromising our faith in Christ. And this plays out in a variety of ways. And in the context, that might be dating someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ. You've been told, it's okay, follow your heart. What's the big deal? They respect your religion at least. They may respect your religion, but they don't worship your God. This is played out in community in different ways. This is also played out in our own personal life. This is not just about relationally. It's ultimately saying, yes, I have a relationship with God, but 
when we play that into our life, there's sort of a shift and we start compromising on things. That might be played out in your workplace. You might be a solid, God-loving Bible reading on Sunday morning, but Monday to Friday, there's this reality that there's a disconnect. The way that you run your business, the way that you may talk to employees, the way that you're tempted to follow into the office gossip and politics. Or maybe in those moments, uh, it is also played out individually where we say, well, you know, it's right in my own eyes because I understand what the Bible says, but that's Old Testament Shabu. We're New Testament people, aren't we? I'm under grace. I'm not hurting anyone. Friends, that's the whole point of grace. Grace is a gift. You are hurting someone when we disobey. The creator of the universe who deeply loves you. We see what's right in our own eyes when this week we may have clicked on those images or those videos that we ought not to. See, the whole point is, this is not just individually in Samson's life, this could also happen corporately. In our day and age, it's very easy to say, hey, what's right in our own eyes is, let's not, let's not God define what relationship and marriage and things are, let's the culture define that for us. It's right in our eyes. That's a bit archaic. It's a bit Old Testament, those kind of language. Why should we follow that? Maybe it might be played out in other ways. Yeah, I understand God. We might say God is made in our own image. You know, we're made in the image of God, but it's only for certain races, isn't it? Where there have been generations and cultures demeaned, even people using verses from the Bible to get their way. It's right in their own eyes but it's definitely not right in God's eyes. See, at the heart of the statement of Samson's heart and the heart of all of us when we do this, when we say it's right for me, it doesn't matter, it's ultimately saying, no thanks, God. It's right in my eyes and that's all that matters. See, there's another way to look at it is when we have that kind of God stuff and non-God stuff and we compromise and say, oh, well, it's open to interpretations. Friends, in front of us in these verses, what we're about to see is a downwards, downward spiral of what happens when we say either individually or collectively, but that person, it's right in my eyes. That thing that I'm pursuing, it's right in my eyes. Friends, I say this to myself too. You and I might be saying right now there are things in our own lives that's right in our eyes. But what it's probably doing is it will be impacting your relationship with Jesus. In the story that we see in front of us, though, there is a God who's not far away in the midst of all this mess. A God who's not silent. Neither is a God who's ever caught by surprise. Now remember, Samson's not living out his calling. He's not living out this call of being a Nazarite. But not only that, the particular call we read last week about being the rescuer of Israel from the Philistines. Uh, he's definitely not rescuing in this moment. What's he doing? He's finding a wife. But here is a God who's involved. In Judges 14.4 it says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord who was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at that time. Philistines ruled over Israel. Another way or a better way to kind of read it in its original way is ultimately just say the father and mother did not realize this was the Lord's doing because he was looking for an opportunity to stir up trouble with the Philistines. There's a couple of ways of reading this. 
There are those who may read this and go, well, this must be Samson's secret strategic plan on beating the Philistines. What he'll do, he'll go find a wife, get into that culture, and from within, he'll destroy our enemy. So he's okay. He's allowed to do that. I would suggest a better way to read it is this, that God is willing and using Samson's disobedience for his purposes. Now, to remember that in the whole book of Judges, Israel is a nation constantly disobeying. People are constantly disobeying. God, in the midst of the disobedience, is involved. God is using their disobedience, his disobedience, for his own purposes. Now, this is not saying God's causing someone to sin. This is saying that God's very purpose of rescuing a nation will not be stopped. Even by a person who has no interest in being a judge in this moment, neither is he wanting to do what God requires of him. He's doing everything opposite. In the midst is a God who works in Samson's sin and weakness and rebellion. What we're seeing is a picture of a God who's ever patient, ever gracious, who's sovereign, despite of Samson, despite of you, despite of me. And what we're seeing is the downward flow of sin. This is the downward flow and spiral and deception of sin. And this is a man who's wanting and he's decided he's going to ignore the parents' counsel. And now notice though, before we say, oh yeah, you know, if you're all parents, like, see, told you, you should listen to mum and dad. Mum and dad aren't necessarily out of, not in trouble either. Notice what they do, remember? They go down with Samson to Timnah. They should not be going down themselves. But they decide to go down with Samson. It shows in many ways the failure of the parents as well. And then you have this picture of these battles, right? You, you can just, this beautiful story writing where you, there's Samson. He goes through where? A vineyard. He battles a lion empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now remember in the Nazarite vow, is he allowed to be near a vine? No. But he's already down there. And what does he do? He decides to go and have a chat with this girl. And he's been there chatting with her for a while. And sometimes some people, that's the idea. So he's probably doing more than just chatting. He's sort of, you know, getting to know this girl in the area. And then he decides to go back. Why? Because the corpse is there. That means he's been gone for a little bit. And he goes all Bear grill style. And puts his hand to the carcass of a lion. And then goes, gives it to his parents. But notice in the language of the text that says he did not tell his parents twice. He's keeping secrets. He's holding him back. And the question is why? Why is he keeping secrets? And this is the downward spiral of sin in that it starts saying, well, just hide it. Don't tell everyone. No one knows. It doesn't matter. He's already broken the Nazarite vow. He's near a vineyard. Not only that, he's touching the carcass of a dead animal and he's grabbing honey, and if you can just imagine going home and he gives it to mum and dad, and dad's putting it on the toast, and dad says, oh, this is delicious. It tastes really yum. And Samson's, yeah, it's very organic, you know? <laughs> now, if he told his parents it's from a dead animal, uh, they would be like, what have you done? What have you brought into our household? See, what I find amazing is that still God works. God empowers Samson to kill a lion. I don't know about you. In those moments I'm reading that passage, and go, why has God even helping him out? He's got himself in trouble. Let him get himself out of trouble. That is a picture of grace, friends. This is the subtle downward spiral of sin where you see this man not telling anyone, let's hide. 
hide it. Let's hide the secrets. Friends, did you know that we can't hide anything? There is someone who always knows. It's the God of the universe. He sees all and knows all. He knows everything, even this individual thought that you're having this morning right now as you sit in that seat. With all the secrets, he goes and prepares this marriage. He's committed, and there's a party. And the language that it says that the party means that most probably there is wine. There's lots of drinking going on. That includes Samson. And that's shown by the way he decides to do a bit of a wager. But notice if parents are not involved, they're not arguing, they're not saying, Samson, don't do that. Neither is he sort of realizing, oh, I've broken the vow of the Nazarites. I should go and repent and cleanse myself again. This man is committed of chasing after this girl. He decides to have a party. He's probably had a few drinks, most probably, and he decides to have a bit of a wager. A bit creates a riddle. It unsettles the Philistine and Jewish relationships already. This is God moving in the background, and the feud starts to happen between a Philistine's group and a Jewish man. And Samson's bet is basically, if you win this riddle, if you figure it out, Guys, I'll give you 30 garments and change of clothes. The Philistines are struck. And they can't answer. So they go to their betrothed, their, their, um, Samson's fiance, and say, Hey, listen, I want you to trick your husband. I want you to sleep with him anyway. Get the answer. Because we want to find out. I mean, aren't you a Philistine lady? You, you, you're one of us. Are you involved in this trap? Is this a trap to, to make mockery of us? And just to make sure that you get the answer we want, we're threatening you with life. We will kill you if you don't do this. We will kill your family. This woman is caught. She's in danger. And what's she going to do? Go after her fiancé? No, she wants to live. The language is so forceful in the, in, the, in the narrative is to say, basically, she was nagging him every day until she got the answer. He even says, hey, look, listen, I know I haven't told you. Neither have I told my parents. There's more secrets in all of this. And then finally, he's nagged to the point. He says, all right, fine. This is what it means. So she goes and tells the 30 young men. Samson loses the bet. And he knows the source. You've heard that really confronting language, the way that he described his fiancée. Friends, this is what happens, though, this picture of what happens when your eyes lead you to do whatever you want, whatever is fitting for you. What it does is, I think it drowns out those God filters to eventually numb you to your senses. What we're seeing is not just the story of Samson, we're seeing the story of a whole nation. They all did what seemed right in their own eyes. And this, in a mini micro way, has been shown in Samson's life. Yet here's a God who works through broken and sinful men. God sends his spirit again to help him to get him out of his mess, which I find confronting and amazing. Why even bother? This is a picture of a gracious God. Here is God showing that his purposes can't be thwarted. It's to say that God has doing some work in the background. Remember, the Lord was seeking an opportunity. God and his sovereign purpose and plan is involved in Samson's rebellion and sin being used for God's ultimate purpose to rescue a whole nation. Because the feud is now about to escalate. It's going to get really bad. From 30 men, guess what? More are to come. This is a picture of a God who works with messed up people. 
people like you and me. People who are also today tempted to do whatever is pleasing in our own eyes. This is the grace of God. So after losing the bet, um, before he's married, or after the marriage actually, he decides to head home where? To his wife? No, he goes back to mummy and daddy. It's an interesting part of his character, I think. He's so annoyed and frustrated, he's gone for a while, and the father-in-law thought, well, he's annoyed with the wife. He might, uh, might as well hand her over to uh, the best man. And so he's so annoyed, he, he comes back in chapter 15. He, he's not even interested in fulfilling his calling anymore still. He comes back, he, he hasn't been with this wife of his. He wants to bring back an offering so that he can sleep with her. And he hears, oh, oof, I thought you said you didn't like her. You said something about a heifer in the last few verses. I've, listen, Samson, mate, she's got a younger sister, better looker. You should go for her. Friends, this is like, I love the Bible that it doesn't hide away this stuff, but it's confronting. Because in that culture, women seen as commodity passed around by their parents, it's terrible to watch and listen to. And here is Samson who's mad. Is he mad because he's lost a wife? Yes, but he's not really mad about that. What he's really mad about, he didn't get what he wanted. His actions show that remark. He's basically saying, I'm going to be justified in my anger. I'm going to be justified in what I'm about to do. I'm going to destroy their livelihoods. And once again, he goes all Bear grill style and finds most probably jackals, not foxes. That's the same word used in the Hebrew. But the scene would have been so confronting. If you can just imagine animals running in all directions, yelping, yelling, burning fur, loud noise. It's a visual picture of a man who's consumed by anger and vengeance. And that's what exactly is done back to him. The Philistines come, murder the father-in-law and daughter, and they too light a fire. Two fires are lit, all driven by two groups of people's hearts consumed by anger and vengeance. What we're seeing is full, high-definition picture of depravity. Notice it's not led by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a picture of vengeance, of tit and tat. I'll hurt you, I'll hurt you more. And so Samson takes revenge on them. And friends, before you and I shake our heads so quickly, you and I also, I think, in different ways can fall into this. No, you might not go, go someone hurts you. Uh, you might not go and run off to the fields and find some jackals and go burn someone's house down. But we may burn someone's personality or thoughts down or their personhood by the way that we talk with our words by the gossip that we create by the slander the cynicism that we might have of others in those moments as we do that we're actually being bad witnesses as Scott alluded to it in communion focus and in a world that continues to say that hey no no it's all about political correctness we need to love one another care for one another listen I can put up a status update today very easily making my statement of what I believe on a particular thing. I will very quickly find from my friends who don't know Jesus how appreciative they are of my point of view. It's called death by social media. Friends, what we're seeing is an opportunity for us to realize whether if you're Samson or the Philistines, whoever you are, whether if you're one who claims to belong to God or not, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. 
Because in that moment, when we are people who are acting in such a way and belong to God, we're ultimately forgetting that we are under a king. For those who don't believe in God, we're saying we're rejecting the king's loving authority and rule. And the question is, who are you? Who am I? But here is the thing. Whoever you are, God's grace is never, ever far away. So the escalating story happens, all right? Samson's picked a fight. It's starting to escalate. Samson kills and he decides to get vengeance and he decides to go have a bit of a rest. He goes to hide in a cave. That's nothing new. You see that in the story of Judges. It's the place to go and hide away from trouble. But the thing is, Samson can't run away from his problems. Samson can't run away from his actions. The problems come straight to him. In Judges 15.9, it says, And the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah, made a raid on Leah, and the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know what the Philistine are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new robes and brought him up from the rock. Uh, my guess is most probably as the storyline goes, the reputation of Samson's going ahead of him. It's spreading to the point that they have to bring 3,000 men to meet one guy. And they're a bit worried. And now, in this moment, if you're reading this, and if you are one of the Jewish um, community reading this, they, you need to ask some questions. They're not going and saying, Samson, we've heard what you've done. Would you help us? Would you help us beat these Philistines? Would you lead us? No, what are they doing? They come and say, hey, Samson, look what you've done. You've caused us a lot of trouble, buddy. Don't you realize they're rulers over us? We want to keep the peace. In other words, what they're saying is, hey, Samson, don't rock the boat. We've got it good. We're okay in being an occupied nation. And Samson responds, you know, in the most holy way, no. He said, well, they started it. That's what he's saying. That's in the Hebrew. You can look it up. And then, and then he says, he says, all I did was I did the same thing. It's really a sign of pride in this man. And he just says, makes a deal with him. Don't kill me. Take them as a prisoner. That's fine to be handed over. The following scene is nothing. It's the most glorious, like an epic movie scene. The Philistines are shouting, that the man, their enemy is bound and think that we've won. They're screaming in triumph. Insert the dramatic music. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. And what ensued must have been a sight to see. Grabbing the fresh jawbone of a donkey, Samson proceeds to kill a thousand men. Now, I don't know about you, that is a, that's epic. But in the most oddest places, Samson either sings a song or says a poem. But notice how he summarizes at the end of his battle. I have struck a thousand men. Have I struck a thousand men? With the jawbone of a donkey. Who struck down the Philistines? That jawbone that Samson's using? Who gave the strength to Samson? It's not till the Holy Spirit rushed on him, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, did the strength happen. It was the Lord who empowered him. And you know what? That is the true picture of Samson's life. 
It's the Spirit of the Lord constantly empowering him to do the work. It's a powerful display of God's grace. Once again, God is reminding the people reading in us, God keeps his covenants. God keeps his promises. The God who promised to say, I will use Samson to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines is doing exactly what he said. And he's going to do it despite of Samson. And it's to show us as God who's very gracious even more. You see these verses in 18 and 20. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and he said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is the Leanne water came out from it. And then he drank his spirit and he revived. Therefore the name of his call, Echaron, and is Leah to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Samson calls upon the Lord. He's just killed a thousand with a jawbone of a donkey. This is probably the two times in his life he calls. First this time and next, next week. And both times in his weakest moments, he calls out for God for salvation, deliverance. He's saying, please, please, you bring salvation, bring deliverance. Otherwise, I'll fall into the enemy's hands. And God provides. Out of nothing, God provides water for a man who's thirsty, crying out. And this crying out is not repentance. Lord, I'm sorry, I've done wrong. No, this is a cry out. I'm in trouble. Quick, rescue me. That's the story of Judges again. But God doesn't say no. God says yes and provides him water. But he didn't just provide water, did he? He's the one who empowered him to do the work. He's the one who's been gracious to listen to his complaint and brings before him a spring of water. One calls out, the Lord provides water. Friends, what we're seeing in this hand, uh, these chapters, is God's gracious hand of a man who's spiraling out in his sin. And God still provides rescue. God still shows grace despite of sinful people. Whether if it's Samson or the nation of Israel, even the Philistine people, or even you and me. And you know what? The storyline of being thirsty is nothing new in the Bible. Actually, the Israelites earlier in Exodus 17 were grumbling in the desert. And they said, we are thirsty. And out of nothing, God provides water out of a rock. Many years later, the prophet Jeremiah would say, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold no water. In other words, God is saying the judgment, hey, you're after things that will always make you thirsty. Rather than coming to me, the living water. The great Puritan by the name of Richard Sibb says this, All earthly things are like salt water that increaseth the appetite but not satisfied. Or as a modern day poet by the name of the Rolling Stones say, I can't get no satisfaction. Friends, this is the story of the Bible when people turn away from what God provides to something else. And ultimately what it does, it will cause you to be thirsty over and over again. I praise God for Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, Jesus said this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow of living waters. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. As yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus proclaims his wonderful truth to you and I. Do not thirst after the things of this world. 
And if you do drink out of the things of this world, it'll be like drinking salt water. You will want more and more and more. Or you'll be drinking out of like broken cisterns and you will always feel unsatisfied. What Jesus does is he offers him, you and I himself, the living water. When you and I put our trust in him, Unlike Samson, who had momentary rushes of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit now comes and lives in our hearts forever. And out of us will flow out Jesus, our King. Friends, this is the good news of the Gospel. Samson is a reminder that we do have an ever-gracious God. He's a God who still hates sin and calls us not to chase after it, but despite of us, provides something better. Better than physical strength. And friends, as we've been reminding all through our service, if you haven't picked it up yet, if the grace of God has become just information to you, I would call out to you and encourage you, cry out to God and always say to him, Lord, please never let your grace become information. But you are captured by it day by day, like water that rushes through your soul, reminding you of the son who gave himself. So unlike Samson, we have a great king who didn't chase after women, but chased after his church, the bride. To this day, he only has eyes for her. Unlike Samson, Jesus did not sin in his anger, yet he was willing to become the most defiled thing on the cross for you and for me. And on the cross, the most weakest moments in history, Jesus says, I thirst. And he's given a cup of sour wine. It's a symbol of him drinking the cup of the wrath of the Father on your behalf and mine. This means if you don't know Jesus, you can live your life as you wish, but you will constantly be chasing after the next high, the next status update, the next job role, the next degree, the next relationship till you feel satisfied, but you will never be until you drink from Jesus. We would invite you to explore that with us if you don't know him. Maybe the friend that brought you today. Because once you do and you, you drink from Jesus, he gives you his spirit who will come and live in him. And then you get to join in his mission to go and share this good news. And out of you will flow through the Holy Spirit springs of life. For those of us who know Jesus, what's going on in your life right now when the noise drowns out? You're ultimately saying, I'm doing whatever's pleasing in my eyes. I want it. What has taken your eyes away from your Savior and from his loving commands? If that's you, friend, please stop. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Ask forgiveness and drink from his gracious cup. Friends, there are some of us here, I think, might fall into the trap of thinking, well, at least I'm not like X. You know that person who keeps on dropping the ball in their walks in life? Can I just encourage you to be very careful? Let's not become moral Pharisees who assume that grace is only for other people. We still need it. I still need it. We're not better than them. The only thing that makes us approved before God is Christ in us. So this week, as you head into this week, as you head into this week, as you plan before you start your day, maybe ask, your, ask the Lord to help you. 
Simply ask the question, Lord, am I going to be tempted to take the easier route in my life? Or is there something else I should do, which is to follow you? Where are you feeling the pressure right now to take the easier route in your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. Look to him. Sin is a destructive cycle. But God's grace is restorative. And that is a wonderful thing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're at work in our lives, despite even those moments when we may even work against you. Please help us to have eyes to seek the things of you. Pray our hearts will praise you. And Lord, please help us to be a church community, not just on Sundays, but every day as we depend on you. Whether it's seasons of going well or really badly. Holy Spirit, we can't do this on our own. We need your help. And Lord, for those of us who don't know you, would you cause our hearts to keep thirsting till we drink from you. In your mighty name, amen.